Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Behind the Beams podcast. My name's Rebecca. And my name's Hannah. And both of us can't believe that this is actually happening. This episode has been so long in the planning and the making, but um, we're really happy and excited to be able to show everyone what we've been up to. Um, Obviously, it's something that's totally out of our comfort zone and we've never done anything like it before. But we feel that this podcast is something that's needed right now, both for patients, uh, the public and the therapeutic radiographer workforce. Yeah, totally. So this episode will be focused around cancer of the pelvis area with a specific focus on cervical cancer and HPV, which is the leading cause of cervical cancer. We're going to discuss radiotherapy to the pelvis and the late effects it can cause, as well as the impact of radiotherapy on sexual health. With the help of our lovely guests, Rhea, Lauren and Hannah, we're going to hope to promote communication and education for those listening and to hopefully help those who may have been recently diagnosed or who may be going through treatment at the moment so they know that they're not alone on this. So should we go ahead and introduce everybody? Let's go. Okay, so firstly, I want to introduce Rhea Criden. So Rhea is a cervical cancer survivor and she was diagnosed in 2016, finishing her treatment in 2017. She's since been living with the long term and the late effects of the chemotherapy and radiotherapy she received, which is something she wants to speak about today. She's a clinical matron for cancer services, a member of the medical advisory panel for PRDA UK, so that's Pelvic Radiation Disease Association UK, helping to support individuals affected by pain after pelvic radiotherapy. Rhea is a supporter of many charities, such as Eva Peel and Joe's Cervical Cancer Trust, who we have with us today. She worked with Joe's on their recent report regarding the long-term side effects of pelvic radiotherapy in conjunction with PRDA UK. Rhea documented her cancer journey um, by use of a blog to help raise awareness of cancer in and around pregnancy, because unfortunately she discovered that after she had her son, um, that's when she was diagnosed with cervical cancer. Um, it's treatment and the long term and the late effects is kind of the focus of her blog and it, it's absolutely brilliant in terms of a great resource for anybody who wants to read in terms of going through this sort of treatment um, thoughts and feelings and for health professionals as well who want to understand exactly what somebody went through and how we can do more um, as health professionals to support that person and um, so Rio, whenever you're ready if you just want to go ahead with your story yeah no problem thank you for uh, the lovely introduction um so I guess my story began when I was five months pregnant um and I started having some kind of unusual bleeding um uh went and got checked out everything was fine with baby baby was fine so um just reassured me that that can happen so that carried on throughout the rest of the pregnancy um towards the end of the pregnancy it got worse the bleeding become a lot heavier there was kind of um pelvic pain I had some uh, problems with bowels and bladder as well and um having pain down my legs and again it was just kind of put down to the fact that these things can happen in pregnancy you know you've got baby weight in there and lots of pressure on different structures and so it can just happen and some people just bleed um so I had my little boy by C-section, um, which was planned anyway, because he was a pain and he was breech, which in hindsight, he was the cleverest little boy. I don't blame him for not wanting to go out that way because there was a great big tumour in the way. <laughs> um, so he was very clever. Um, so I had my little boy and 
just before I had my um, my son, I went into hospital again with another bleed. I was having some kind of irregular contraction. So they decided to bring the C-section forward and just get on with it. Um, and my last examination, I was told that I had a very angry cervix was what I was told. Um, I'm not quite sure what that means, but I'm assume, assuming it means it was inflamed uh, um, and it, like enlarged. Um, and they advised me to have a cervical screening done after I'd had my son because I was due cervical screening anyway. I'd had my previous one. Um, just after I'd had my daughter three years previously. So I had my little boy, carried on with life, you know, as you do with a, a, a very small baby and a three-year-old child as well. Um, and the pain was just getting worse. The bleeding wasn't settling. Um, I just kind of thought it was because I'd had a C-section and, you know, just had a baby. So didn't really think too much of it until I got towards kind of six, seven weeks um, after having him and thought oh this is probably should be getting better by now not worse yeah. so I went um went and spoke to my health visit I went and saw my GP initially and the GP said you know this can happen sometimes it takes longer for people to recover than others so give it another couple of weeks and then it was around eight weeks I think I took my little boy for his check um and the midwife said you know this that no, it was the health visitor sorry said that you know this isn't normal this doesn't sound like it's particularly normal you need to go and get checked out and I saw a lovely amazing GP who tried to examine me and failed miserably bless her <laughs> and said no this isn't right you need to go straight to A&E but again they were still thinking that it could be potentially um, retained placenta from the c-section or an infection or something else that was going on not once i think did anyone contemplate that it would be cancer um, i think cervical cancer in pregnancy is very rare i think it's like one in is it ten thousand or something like that it's very very rare incident so um it wasn't kind of what people were thinking went and um got some uh, antibiotics and some things to help the bleeding some tranexamic acid and some stuff for the pain relief as well and then was referred to the um, ultrasound clinic okay. where I had examination and ultrasound done which um, picked up a bulky cervix um, and I was referred via the two-week wait pathway then to have a colposcopy so obviously I was still being reassured that this is just a pathway, this is just routine, this is what we do when there's any kind of potential red flags. Um, don't worry, you know, the chances are it's nothing untoward, it's just one of those things, but we just need to check it out. Um, of course, being a nurse, <laughs> I kind of knew that a two-week wait pathway kind of suggested that it was something a bit more untoward going on, um, and I knew my symptoms. Um, I think in my head I'd already diagnosed myself with like stage four. Yeah. <laughs> the pain, the, I remember the pain was just so horrendous in my pelvis that I just assumed that it was kind of in the bones and um, so actually eventually after the colposcopy um, I had biopsies done um, and the gynae consultant at the time during the colposcopy said that he could see a visible mass at that point um, but obviously they needed biopsy results first and that I'd need to have scans and investigations under anesthesia and things as well but that it was 99.9% .9 likely it would come back as a malignancy um, which I'd kind of already got my head around the fact that that was going to be the case but still hearing it's a bit of a shock. Um, and then I remember when I actually had my diagnosis, um, which was the 2nd of December 2016, when my little boy was just before his 12 week anniversary. Um, I remember going to see the consultant and she told me, you know, the diagnosis, which was um, stage 2B, node positive. Um, at the time, they didn't involve nodes in the staging. I believe now FIGO has changed their staging. So I think now if I was being diagnosed with the same presentation, it would be 3C1. Um, but at the time that that hadn't happened yet. Um, yeah. And I remember saying, oh, that's fine then. <laughs> and she said, what do you, what do you mean? And I said, well, I, I thought it was stage four. You know, I thought that this was metastasized everywhere. I thought the pain was horrendous. I just automatically thought that this was far worse. So actually stage 2B seems, seems quite positive. That seems like a good thing. Um, and I think that kind of took her back a little bit that I was probably one of the only people who'd ever been relieved to have a diagnosis. Um, so I think sometimes a little bit of knowledge is a bit of a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so that kind of took me up to that point. I think I was lucky in some respects that my my diagnosis had been sped up a little bit by the fact that I'd been admitted to hospital in the meantime as well. So I'd been admitted with um, horrendous temperatures. So I was spiking temperatures of 41.5, having rigors um, and again with the pain as well. And um, 
because of that, whilst I was an inpatient, they managed to get the CTs and the MRI scans and everything sped up um, and managed then to get my case to the MDT a lot more quickly. Um, so I was very, very lucky in some ways that my symptoms progressed quite quickly so that they everything kind of got sped up a little bit then. Um, and the team, I had my treatment at Maidstone Oncology and the team there were absolutely fantastic. I couldn't have, you know, asked for any better kind of um, support and treatment from, you know, diagnosis all the way through to, to having treatment done um so yeah so that kind of brings me up to the the treatment side of things um yeah, yeah. so um the initial after having the planning um uh, staging done and everything it was to have once weekly chemotherapy with cisplatin um mm -hmm. uh, for five cycles and then i was supposed to have 25 fractions of external beam radiotherapy and then three brachytherapy once weekly as an outpatient mm -hmm. i appreciate there are different ways of delivering brachytherapy but i think in some ways i was quite lucky to get the outpatient one where i could just go in get some amazing drugs <laughs> yes. have final have my brachytherapy and then go home again um I ended up only having three cycles of chemo because I had such horrendous acute side effects from it. Um, horrendous nausea and vomiting, lost 10 kilos in about two weeks. Kicks Weight Watchers and Slimming Wheels butt. Um, and a bit extreme way to get rid of my baby weight, unfortunately. But... Um, so because of that, I ended up having um, a few extra fractions of radiotherapy external beam instead. So I kind of went to 28 fractions instead, I think, um, to kind of a bit of a top up. Um, and then, yeah, so I finished my brachytherapy and luckily for me, my cancer responded really, really well to treatment, even before they'd started the brachytherapy at the scanning bit where they're setting you all up for the brachytherapy and making sure that everything's right for it. Um, even then, the tumour had visibly, they couldn't really see the tumour anymore, um, even before doing it. So I'd had a really, really positive response to the treatment, which was fantastic. So how did you get on in terms of side effects, Ria, both um, while you were having treatment and also kind of any late effects that you may have experienced after you had your radiotherapy and your chemo? Um, yeah, so I think I think during my treatment, obviously, I had some horrible acute effects from it, but I was quite aware that I was going to have those acute effects. So I'd been um, I was very aware of the kind of diarrhea and the mm -hmm. localized kind of skin changes. Um, I don't remember being told about the localized hair loss because I remember being a little bit surprised at that. I don't know why I was surprised. <laughs> You'd think it would have made sense. <laughs> yeah. um, but yeah, that was one of one of the things that shocked me about the acute side effects. I knew that I wasn't have hair loss from my chemo, but I never thought about the fact that the radiotherapy would cause that hair loss. Yeah. No waxing needed. It saved a fortune <laughs> during that time. Um, but so like the skin changes um, and obviously the urinary issues as well. And the fact that I had horrendous um, cystitis type pain and um, uh, an increased frequency, which you really don't want increased frequency when you've got horrible pain when you urinate. Um, yeah. So those were the kind of main ones. But the other bit that I don't think I was really prepared for with the radiotherapy was the fatigue. Yeah. It really shocked me how much it impacted me. And I'm not sure whether it was just having, you know, the combination of the chemo and the weight loss and being poorly with that and then having the radiotherapy as well. Um, but I was traveling 45 minutes to an hour each way to have the radiotherapy five days a week. So I think that also probably didn't help. Mm -hmm. um, and then having the horrendous diarrhea um which again i'd kind of been warned about but i don't think you really appreciate what it's like until you experience it which isn't a health professional's fault you know it doesn't matter how much you try and explain to someone you can never really get your head around it until it starts happening um so that was i don't think that helped with the fatigue either because mm -hmm. i was up going to the toilet like 20 odd times a day um so that obviously impacts your sleep and everything as well um so, yeah, so from the acute side effects, I felt that I was pretty forewarned about most of them. Um, the longer term and kind of more late effects, I don't, I was aware of some of them, but I don't think I had as much awareness as I think that potentially I should have had or maybe would have been beneficial to have had. Um, and I think now um, I'm aware that they are looking at uh, standardised consent forms and things as well, which have those kind of details in, which I think is brilliant. Yeah. I don't necessarily think it's that great time to go into loads of detail about it because you don't want to scare people off from having the treatment done because, you know, despite long term and late effects, I don't regret my treatment in the slightest. I would do it again. You know, it's, it's allowed me to still be here now four and a half years later so far so um 
but I think it is very much a case of making sure that people have a bit more knowledge about what potentially can happen, not just at that time, but within months or possibly years as well afterwards. Um, so things like the pain in the pelvis and um, some of the issues that I've had with um, kind of musculoskeletal and, and um, yeah, those kinds of things and, and the sexual function side as well. There wasn't really much conversation about that side of things, which I, I appreciate at the time when you're going through treatment, it wasn't really in my thought process at the time. I wasn't yeah. thinking about that. Um, but certainly after treatment, I think it would have been really beneficial to have had those conversations and um, very early on signposted the things that would have been beneficial, apart from the horrendous dilators. <laughs> <laughs> NHS dilators are not great. Bless them. They're very plastic. Yeah. <laughs> can, um, can I ask a question, Maria? If, what, what would you have like to have been told at the beginning from a late effects point of view you know so how much information sorry I've jumped in and asked I'm just wondering you know obviously it's difficult like you said at the beginning to know you maybe didn't want all that information at the beginning and you wouldn't have taken it all in but in hindsight you know what were the bits that were missing that you think you could have taken in it's a it's a bit of a tricky question really yeah. isn't it no i think i think it's a good question because as health professionals it's really difficult isn't it to find that balance mm. between giving somebody too much information and not enough yeah. and every individual is so different some people don't want information they quite happily mm. just want you to do to them and other people need a lot of information to feel less anxious mm. and to feel more in control so it is hard to find that balance but um i think even just having a like a short sentence just to mention that there are some so most of the time these symptoms will settle for people over the next so many weeks and months however there are a number of patients who these may continue for months sometimes years afterwards and um, if this seems to be the case for you if you're struggling with any symptoms please let us know and then we can obviously um, do an assessment and we can signpost you accordingly. There are some symptoms that for some people can occur even years afterwards. So at any point in the future, if you do develop symptoms and you're, um, you have any concerns that this could be related to your previous radiotherapy, such as A, B and C, you know, please do get back to us. Now, I don't necessarily think you need to have that conversation pre-treatment. I think making a very small awareness of it, yeah. but maybe at each appointment, just mentioning these things because people don't take it in. On yeah. the first appointment, you could have told me that I'd won a million pounds and I wouldn't have heard you. Well, that, that was my other question was yeah. whether you think you may have been told these things, but you just well, didn't exactly, take in it in. Side. That's why I was looking back through my information overload. Yeah, yeah, so that's why I thought I'd look back through my blog the other day in kind of preparation thinking, you know, your memory changes and especially mm -hmm. with the menopause, I can't remember what I ate last week, let alone what I did four years ago. Um, Neither I, can I. That's <laughs> I can't just blame it on the menopause then, damn it. Um, but no, I think I think my team were really good and I think they did try to give me information. But I think so things, for instance, like radiation induced lumbar plexopathy, you know, it's something that some people don't even still acknowledge exists. It's still only until recently hasn't been in literature. Um, so I think um, things like that, although they are very rare, I'm very aware in other in other settings, such as when you're having an epidural done, you have to be told that there are rare incidences of paralysis and nerve damage. So if that's the case for some procedures, why not for all procedures? Why aren't patients given that information? You know, the odds are you'll get these acute effects. 99% of patients do. However, you know, they're 10% of people and less than 1% of people. So I think that's where those standardized forms come into it yeah. because then patients do have percentages on those standardized forms yes, as well, which I think if it's yeah. a numerical value, yeah. it helps people sort of compartmentalise and understand it a little bit better, doesn't it? Definitely, yeah. yeah. I think it's really, really helpful to have that on those forms. And it means the patients have that information. And if they want to talk to you more about them, they can. They've got that permission and they've got a little bit of knowledge to then start that conversation. But actually, if at that point they don't want to, then they don't have to. You know, as long as you're bringing it up at other kind of re review appointments as well, then they have those opportunities. Um, yeah, I don't envy you guys. It's a really, really fine line to walk. It's not an easy one at all. Yeah. It's something as well that you're you're obviously very interested in. Um, could you explain a little bit about that? You're wanting to set up um, late effects services yeah. in rural areas. Yeah, so um, the focus of my doctorate will be looking at um, more around the lived experience of patients after pelvic radiotherapy um, and looking at the support needs. Um, I live in a, a very rural area, I think we're the second most remote trust um, 
in England, I think. Um, so we cover such a massive area and there aren't any late effects or support services for that within Devon itself. So we have the amazing Lisa Durant, um, but obviously she's Taunton, which is Somerset. Um, and we have Bath, which is that tertiary amazing centre, but they have very specific criteria and you have to have had local support first. And then there's Gloucester, I think, that's now recently set up. So we have access to services very further afield, but you know some of these patients can't travel that far. Mm. COVID has helped with the whole virtual part, but I think having more more localised, even just almost like mini late effects clinics where you've got somebody that you can signpost patients to who can do the initial assessment, who has the interest, who has the information, and then can start to do some of the more conservative management approaches and signpost into information and then actually know when to refer on to the more specialist teams and services for further investigations and um, uh, kind of more specialist support then. I think that's what it needs more than anything else. I'm not expecting um, to have all singing, all dancing, late effects clinics in every hospital around the country. I think that's probably unrealistic. We're a very small trust where we are, but to have some kind of person that has that, it's almost like a gatekeeper to yeah, those yeah. other wider services and to the information we can't expect every single CNS and every single consultant to have all of that information. Um, I think, you know, they've got so much information about all the other bits as well. So that's kind of my hope that as part of my role, fingers crossed, maybe in the future, that can be something that can be looked at developing that service. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, it's definitely needed as well, especially obviously you're saying you're in such a remote area, yeah. traveling, it, it's not always, it's not always available to people. Yeah, definitely. It's amazing what you're doing. Oh, thank you. Uh, so next I'd like to introduce Hannah Dwyer. She's a support service officer at Joe Cervical Cancer Trust. She's worked there for nearly four years now, mainly working on the frontline services, which is the helpline. Uh, more recently, she's um, introduced and launched a one-to-one -one cervical cancer support service and also a new email service, which I think, especially considering everything that we've been through in the pandemic, is really important so that people have been able to have a chance to communicate sort of in a non-verbal way um, in case they can't get privacy or something like that. Uh, so I was just wondering if you'd like to explain a little bit more about that service, please, Hannah. Well, we we've had we have an existing service called Ask the Expert, which Lauren's actually one of our panel members. And what that is is slightly different to the email service in that it's more of a medical support. Mm -hmm. So if people want to ask about their diagnosis, their treatment, and it's mainly for medical clarification. We've had that service running for a long time. It's very unique to us, and we're really really proud of it because. Um, it's so helpful and the responses that we get I mean I used to run the service so I used to have the the wonderful job of reading them before passing them on to the service user and the amount of information that you'd learn from being part of that service was just incredible um, and we certainly saw a massive rise in that service throughout the pandemic and we think that that is because that lack of privacy that being at home rather than perhaps at work, having children and family members around you, we certainly did see a rise, rise in that. Um, yeah. The email service actually launched yesterday. That is an extension of the helpline. So rather than it being sort of more of a medical um, question, mm -hmm. it's more of a support and, and things that we can answer within Joe's like we would on the helpline. So if people wanted simple signposting or wanted to just ask, is this normal for what I've been what I'm going through then we could certainly answer that through the email service but it's in its infancy because it just launched yesterday so yeah. um, any inquiries that come through to that service that are more of medical nature we uh, would refer on to um the ATE service the SD expert service as well so okay. that there's that joined up work in there um but certainly all of the things that Ria has talked about I have absolutely heard on the helpline um we recently did run um a virtual event about prd mm -hmm. um which was really really um useful it was great to sit and be part of i just sort of i, I didn't have any facilitation i just joined it because i wanted to see you know how it went and um much like what you've all discussed it was so helpful to everybody and people were really thankful that there was actually something designated specifically for that um effect of cervical cancer and that they hadn't had access to that before and we also did a lymphedema live event on instagram as well um earlier on in the year which i did facilitate with somebody else from lymphedema the lymphedema 
network and again because it was that specific thing and topic that people needed support with we found that it was really useful the feedback for both of those events were were really really good um but but you know everything that you've that you've said Ria I'm you know sadly I have heard before yeah. and, and you know it's really it's really difficult to I mean to find out um in pregnancy as well what a time to find out that you've got this problem and this this condition to be dealt with when you're a new parent even if you've already had a child it's, it's still being a parent all over again aren't you um and I, I know that um from our conversations between Rebecca and myself and Hannah that you know HPV was something that perhaps you didn't know necessarily about no, um, no even as so, a nurse yeah so <laughs> you know that again is something that um that we're hearing and um one of the other services that, that Hannah did sort of touch on is we've started a one-to-one -one service for cervical cancer um survivors patients and their loved ones and friends and family um and what that is is it's six one-hour sessions with myself and you can either have it via email via phone call or i did my first zoom one today which was great um and certainly during those calls i must admit because they're more specified to people that have cervical cancer whereas the helpline could be anybody ranging from a smear test all the way through to cervical cancer actually hearing that they didn't know either and getting that result um on a letter uh, and they hadn't been told about it at their smear test um so when their smear results came through they didn't really know what it was and then there's a big whirlwind of colposcopy then then the results some some ladies actually didn't hear about it at all they were referred straight to colposcopy because yeah. of this angry cervix which is <laughs> use and bulky cervix which is something we get told about as well and find out about it at the same time as cervical cancer and just have never heard about it before no. so that is definitely something that we come across at joe's when i saw your blog online about hpv it was something that literally um struck a note with me because yeah it is it's a topic where i actually wanted to ask lauren whether that is the case do, do you get patients that come through and they're unsure whether the hpv positive and and does that that cause sort of like awkward questions but, but yeah your blog on hpv was something that um i came across and it's an area where we need to kind of it's a taboo topic we need to kind of dismiss it as being a taboo topic because that's just ridiculous i mean you think of of like cervical cancer rates and and obviously the link to HPV, people shouldn't be embarrassed and feel like they, they haven't got anybody to talk to about this. It, it's definitely yeah an area that, that we need to, to raise awareness about. Well, I was just going to say, since you mentioned it, it it's interesting because it's it, obviously we all know it exists and we all know the links to cervical cancer. But it made me think a bit more about the patients that I support here. And it actually doesn't get raised almost at all certainly not by the patients who are on treatment I don't and and certainly in the consultations that I've sat in on with the oncologist it doesn't been raised now it may well be raised a diagnosis with the surgeons and the the specialist nurses but certainly you know just trying to have a think about all the patients I've seen over the years it's very very rarely has it ever come up and I don't know if that's because people are embarrassed to ask or whether they just don't don't know or don't associate it but it is something that you know you've made me think so yeah. <laughs> it's certainly going to be something that I think about a little bit more in the future yeah. and yeah. is it part of the um the, obviously the HPV testing as part of the cervical screening has only been a much more recent thing hasn't mm. it so whether that will change now that now patients being diagnosed maybe will have more of an awareness about their HPV whereas yeah. when I was having the cervical screening it wasn't HPV it was just the cell changes mm -hmm. um so whether that will make a big difference now and I think I think obviously all, all of the the awareness events that that you guys at Joe's have done about HPV and um about some of the you know raising awareness of busting the taboos about it and trying to get people to come forward and talk about it more but not just for cervical also you know people realizing that it affects lots of other cancers as well you know you've got yeah. anal enile and uh, oral cancers as well that I think people are so aware of it with cervical now but I think they forget that actually it covers lots more cancers that actually there's more than just people with a cervix who are affected by HPV cancers as well exactly. and I think that's really important as well. Yeah. Yeah. I would hope that the new vaccine vaccine program for um, for boys that's been added is yeah. going to highlight that as well so yeah. I mean I know from my own experience that I took my son 
um, last year to have his. Um, he didn't get much. He didn't get much of a choice, I have to say. But <laughs> I encouraged him the the benefits of that. And like you say, you know, just saying it's not just about cervical cancer. Um, it is all the other ones as well. So yeah, hopefully the conversation will happen a little bit more with more people knowing about it. Definitely. Yeah, I think now when you have a smear that they actually test just for HPV. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, they don't send it on as far as I'm aware yeah. for further testing unless you test HPV positive. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So yeah. primary screening has it's got such a big benefit because it's more accurate than the old cytology method. However, it does bring up lots of questions for people. So the people that have never heard of it because they've had completely clear smears beforehand and now they've um, had a HPV positive test and possibly cell changes or or not, it might be on its own. They then look into it and think, well, is this brand new? What, why have I never heard of this? And there's yeah. so many things that you have to unpick because it isn't brand new. It's just the way that we're testing is new. So yeah. it just means that people didn't know about it before. Um, and, you know, sometimes when they reach out to people, um, you know, healthcare professionals or their screening nurse who doesn't perhaps know as much about it or don't feel confident talking about it. There's certainly areas there that I know that we we want to help work on at Joe's and that we're always conscious of work that we can get involved in and try and help support. And, you know, we that's why the helpline's so good, because mm. we're here to to offer that additional support out to people that need it. And, you know, we're always on hand to, to do that. And like share information with everyone else as well. Yeah. Well, Larry. Um, I just wondered, Hannah, you talked about one-to-one -one sessions with Joes. What are those new? They are. I mean, originally it was um, part of something called the Hospital Liaison Service, and we were based in in a London hospital. And um, my colleague used to deliver those sessions in person. And then, obviously, we had the pandemic, so we had to slightly adjust how we delivered that service. So now it's um, with myself, and it's a one-to-one -one service. So it's uh, as I said, mainly people that have had cervical cancer, but we have spoken to partners and it's open to sort of other people that might be supporting somebody. So people might solely rely on their friends for support because they don't have family around them and that's, that sort of thing. So it's open to to anybody and it's six one hour sessions. It doesn't people don't have to talk for six for the whole hour, but it's there for them if they want it. Um, and it's, you know, so it's about just offering that support however that might be it might be solely offloading it might be a mixture of signposting and offloading um whatever really works for them really um I mean that so sounds far, absolutely brilliant we've had a number of ladies recently that would really benefit from mm. from knowing that something like that exists yeah, yeah so it's really it's really easy to sign up on our website um uh, you just sign up through the form it comes through to me and then I'll just make contact and find out what's what's the best time um i've got quite a few people on um case out at the moment but um always looking for new people and you know as i said you know as they come to the end of their six then we've got more space for more people so please do signpost into it because i mean it's I, i'm absolutely loving it it's it you i would thought it would have been really similar to, to the helpline but it's actually very different because it's a designated amount of time for somebody. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're on the helpline, you want to support and be there, but you're also really aware that there's other people in the queue that are yeah. talk, talking, wanting to talk. So you've got to get that balance right. But that is that specific time for people to just talk about themselves and their, I hate using this term, but journey, it always just comes out. I don't know why, but that's <laughs> that happens. But they're, they're, they're what they've been through. So, and it's just, I just am absolutely loving it. So if you want to please do share. Yeah. Share that. It's nice to build a rapport with people as it well. Like you do sort of speak to them for an hour a week over six weeks or whatever, but you do sort of get quite a lot out of that. It does, and it's nice to have that closure almost too because on helpline calls you can we offer a call back to every person um, and I used to run that part of the service as well but my colleague now does that and the lovely thing when people say yes to a call back is you get to check and see how they are but if they say no then you could be thinking oh gosh I wonder how that I wonder how that woman is I wonder how that person oh. is uh, and you never get to hear how they are unless they call back you know so it's really good to be able to follow those people through yes. and see how they are and how how they've got on and if they've improved which is just the best you know I've had a few of the people that are like oh I'm great now and I'm like oh it's so good to hear so yeah it is it's just it's, it's so different I just didn't think it would be but 
it is and it's just it's really good i absolutely love it so yeah please do refer people in a bit that is actually amazing because um, we do we see people um going through treatment every day and um obviously there's the medical side where we can refer and we can help in that way but you know that they just want to speak to somebody and to have that service available is just uh, it's just perfect it's exactly what what they need at that time um so yeah it's really good definitely we we've got that and we've just we've just launched our new forum as well so we've always had a forum but we've had um our incredible team at joe's working to uh, make it even more user friendly and it's it's now so user friendly that you can use it on your mobiles really that's accessible um so that launched today so that's also there for people and um, we also have a an annual event called let's meet and we used to run it on a on a saturday usually in london for a whole day but due to um the pandemic we've had to go virtually so we did it last year virtually and it was wonderful and we're doing it again this year and it's from the 13th to the 17th of september so um it's over a week and this year we're concentrating on sort of mindfulness and you know well-being and that kind of thing is the is the sort of overview of the of the um of the the week if you will and each day we've got a different um healthcare professional that's coming to run the sessions so um we we do facilitate a couple of them with within our joe's team and they're called let's talk and um that that's just an opportunity for people to come together and support one another with what they've gone through but the sessions that we've got going on this year are the importance of exercise section sex and relationships um, looking after your mental health um, sex and relationships and that's with partners um, we've got a yoga session we've got a mindfulness session so um, they're all running throughout September and that's live now on our website as well so people can go up and sign up to all of them one of them whichever one um, that they feel that would be helpful to them uh, probably the easiest way is to go onto our website and just search let's meet and it'll be the first one that comes up on there but we really get fantastic feedback from from that event um, and it and it did go much better than we possibly could have imagined last year with it us having to do it virtually and yeah. missing out on that um one sort of in, interaction in person so um that's also there for people as well that's amazing especially because it includes partners as well yeah, yeah it does yeah, yeah um, it affects everyone doesn't it it's obviously not just the patient it's your family everyone around you so that's really inclusive yeah absolutely and um, we usually when we when we have it in person people do often come with a, a loved one or a partner um so we do we obviously do have people come on their own but um the other good thing about it is all the networks people make from the event so um we get people asking in the group chat can i share you know my social media or my name with people so that after the event they've got that connection there and that's quite that's what happens at the face-to-face -face event as well people make friendships and they come together sometimes at the the next ones or they keep in touch um you know in between the the our events that we run so it's those sort of connections as well that people make um yeah. with with people that have gone through such similar things to them you know so it's, it's so it's, important it's, it is yeah it's like a community sort of thing it does absolutely and that's that's what happens on our forum as well it is such a good online community and people i mean we take turns to moderate it in our services team so we get to read those as well and seeing the interactions between people and the support you know when people are going for an appointment and you'll see oh i hope you you know i hope you got on today please let us know how you got on and things like that it's just you know it's really wonderful to see all those links between people oh fantastic Oh, honestly the work that you do at Joe's is just amazing um, and it is it's open to so many people in terms of like covering partners as well and family members yeah. um, that is that, that's really really important um, we know from obviously a clinical perspective sometimes we just really we're constrained by time um, of course. and much, yeah. it's amazing that that service is out there for people to to even just have like on their mobile phone like a yeah that that's so good that technology is amazing <laughs> it is and i i mean i'm not very good at technology no <laughs> but we I've, 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 i i looked at it since it launched down i was like my gosh this is so well i was obviously involved in some parts of the testing but my, my brilliant team members have taken that on board and gone and just done the most amazing job and i just had a look at it today and i was like this is just phenomenal it's so easy yeah. so if i can do it anybody can do it so that's and that's what we want you know so oh fantastic yeah 
Oh, thank you so much, Hannah. Yeah, like, um... Fantastic. Okay, so last but not least, I just want to introduce Lauren Caulfield. So, um, Lauren, I literally had to hunt down like Liam Neeson had taken because I really wanted her to be involved in this episode. Um, her expertise are absolutely invaluable um, with respect to late effects in um, sexual health and radiotherapy. Um, so, Lauren Caulfield qualified as a therapeutic radiographer in 1998 in Cape Town, South Africa. She moved to Oxford to work at the Churchill Hospital in Oxford Cancer Centre in December 2001. She was instrumental in the implementation of the HDR gynae brachytherapy service and in 2015, she successfully gained the position of consultant therapeutic radiographer, working with both external beam radiotherapy and brachytherapy for gynecological cancers. Along with her colleague Heather Nisbet, she developed the Sexual Care After Radiotherapy Clinic, which is currently the only radiographer-led clinic of its kind in the country, which is an absolutely amazing achievement. Lauren's passionate about supporting patients living with and beyond their cancer diagnosis and empowering healthcare professionals to talk to patients about the impact of treatment on their sexuality. So whenever you're ready, Lauren, if you just want to start by telling us a little bit about you and your story. It's not, um, well... I was going to say it's not an interesting story. I guess it, all stories are interesting. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think like a lot of us, we sort of end up in these roles, but I think you end up where, you, where you're suited and where you're supposed to be probably. Yeah. So I did always have an interest in brachytherapy. That was probably where it started. I didn't really ever have a, a site specialty, um, but was always interested in that, um, both where I trained and obviously when I came here. But there was very limited access to it as a, a new radiographer here and like most departments brachytherapy is really sort of specialized they're very small teams you don't get an awful lot of chance to to be involved so when I did get the opportunity to be involved and that was really when we moved from our old cancer center to our new cancer center um, and we had a new service being set up that they were sort of looking for people who were interested and I volunteered and said yes really interested please been wanting to get involved for years so I was really fortunate to um, to help write the protocols and set up our new brachytherapy service in our new cancer centre. Um, and then over the years, it just sort of um, developed. And because we only do gynae brachytherapy here in Oxford, it seemed the natural progression that I would be involved in that. And um, our brachytherapy and sort of gynae specialist at the time left. So I inadvertently took over part of her role, as one does. Um, and then the opportunity came about that that the um, we were going to change the service again to a new a new machine and some new techniques. And alongside that, there was a, a new role being developed for a consultant therapeutic radiographer. Um, so I was like, well, yeah, absolutely. And it's a, an amazing team. The consultants are are brilliant. They're really supportive. I'd worked with them for years, so had a had a relationship with them already. Um, the gynae CNSs are amazing. You know, they run a really good service. It felt like a really good team to get involved in. Um, and over the years, I had sort of got a fondness for the the gynae pa patients. Um, yeah. You know, you you it's not just about their treatment. There's so much more. You know, you you end up Definitely. probably with a lot of sites. You end up hearing about their families and their lives and their, you know, their story. I um, mean, it just seemed to fit really. So that was back in 2015. Dean, I think I got the role. Um, I don't know where the years have gone. Um, <laughs> and I, I couldn't actually imagine doing anything else. I mean, I don't think I ever imagined doing this type of role. You know, you get to the end of the day sometimes thinking, gosh, have I have I talked about, you know, sex and, and vaginas and, and pelvises <laughs> for <laughs> all day? Didn't quite imagine my, my life being there. But um, the opportunity to change roles came about recently. And I thought, actually, you know, I'd really, really miss the patients that I see I couldn't really imagine swapping to another specialty yeah um, so yeah it's sort of where I've ended up and I think where I fit so um a lot of your work and like your research side of things is around sort of um like sexuality and and after, after radiotherapy kind of the sexual side effects if you want to just talk a little bit about that yeah yes. what you see so uh, yeah, it all came about. I think that we were trying to develop a late effect service a few years ago, and it didn't really get off the ground. But something that we thought we really could do, um, and there was a gap for, was creating some sexual support for patients post radiotherapy. We have a very good psychosexual service in um, Oxford, but it's 
as all services, there's, you know, they are limited to who they can see and where you live and the numbers of patients, big waiting lists, and they, they can't possibly see everybody. And not everybody needs psychosexual therapy. Yeah. There's a lot of our patients who just need that safe space to be allowed to talk about their problems, talk about their concerns. You know, some of them just want to talk, really. So we just saw there was a real gap there. And it was actually really well supported by we discussed it with Maggie's we discussed it with um, our department leads the consultants everyone was completely on board obviously because there is a, a real need for it um, and so it was actually really easy to set up it sounds quite flippant but it actually really was easy I think because it was really really well supported by everyone that we'd taken it to so um, it was, where are we now, 20, I think it was the end of 2019 we started our service. So it was originally run by three of us um, and then it ended up being two of us mainly ran it. So it was myself and my colleague Heather. Um, and we would see and currently do see um, anyone who's had radiotherapy treatment doesn't mean um you know it could have been yesterday could have been five years ago could have been 10 years ago as long as they've had radiotherapy treatment um to any bit of them uh, we'll see them so anybody um could be referred in either by their consultant or they could hear about it there there was information in the gp surgeries locally about it so patients could self-refer in that way um anyone who sees a consultant at follow-up they can they can ask their consultant to refer them in um Every patient that we treat gets an end of treatment leaflet with sexual care clinic details in it with the email address and the phone number so they can either self-refer or ask the doctor to do it for them. It's really easy to to get in and we've we've not been inundated with referrals to the point that we can't cope. So there's no waiting list. It's really a case of if somebody inquires, we can usually see them within a few days or a week, just depends on on their availability. So from that point of view, it's really well um, well managed. I'm hoping it will be inundated because we know there's a need out there and we know yeah. there are patients out there who really do require some sort of, of help and, and advice. Um, so that's part of what I'm quite interested in doing and I'm trying to do is really just to talk to people and present and, and talk to the students and talk to the medical staff and really just raise the awareness that it really does need to be mentioned at every point in the patient's pathway yeah. Um, yeah. right from diagnosis all the way to end of life care um, I had a, a palliative care patient who I was referred the other day um, who had lots of issues and lots of concerns and and lots of fears and worries um, and hadn't had the chance to talk about it with yeah. anybody before um, and a lot of people, like you said, they're just really scared to raise the issue. They don't want to open that can of worms. They think, oh, if I ask them, they're going to start telling me all these things and I don't know what to do with it. Um, but it yeah. doesn't matter. You know, you really don't need to know what to do with it or you can't possibly solve all the problems. But patients really do appreciate just being allowed to bring up the issue um, or, or, you know, just really appreciate that space for you to hear them. Yeah, it's true. It's something that can affect all genders, any sexuality. Absolutely. Yeah. So we have um, it's probably it was when we did our um, our sort of audit recently and, and published our article. It was about three to one and probably is about the same still in favour of men who were being referred in. So predominantly prostate cancer um, and a few lower GI cancers. Um, it's probably split about 50-50 with the women for the lower GIs and the gynae cancers. Um, interestingly, we've had very few breast cancer referrals and, and we know that there's a lot of breast cancer patients, probably I think up to 50% who have problems with body image and sexual yeah. function, That's problems so after treatment. Yeah, so absolutely. Yeah, so we know the needs there. It's frustrating when you know the needs there, but you're not getting the numbers of patients in. Um, yeah, so it's just trying to raise that awareness. Yeah, definitely. It is very much about about raising the awareness, about it being available. Um, because you're right. Um, from obviously we've seen patients, and I think it's an area where it's it's such a, a difficult topic to approach as well because you don't. Yeah, you don't want to be offensive of any in any way, but <laughs> absolutely, it, you definitely know that 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 would be something that 
you would want to discuss. Um, you just need to find the right person. Yeah. And obviously well, the service is available. That's one of the things that we sort of talk about in the in the teaching that I've done is that there are sometimes, like you were saying, Ria, with dilators, you know, it's quite easy to squeeze it into the conversation there. You know, it fits. You're talking about sex yeah. um, to a point anyway. Um, but, you know, if you're seeing a patient and you're just talking about a skin review, for example, you know, it's quite difficult, like you say, to find the words to to throw it in. Although something I've been saying to to some of our colleagues is you really don't have to ask in-depth delving questions. You asking them about their bowels, about their bladder, about this, that and the other. And you can just ask very easily within all of that. What about sex and intimacy? Yeah. You know, you can just put it in there and it just normalizes it for the patient yeah. to let them know that this is an expected thing. This is OK to talk about. This person will listen to me. I'm allowed to I'm allowed to mention it to them. And it's it's not making it that sort of secretive thing that they can't talk about. Yeah, definitely. It needs to kind of. Uh, we need to come away from it being known as sort of like a bit of a secret and kept private because it is a private um a private area of somebody's life but, yeah. and there's a lot of people who won't who won't take that on board they'll be like oh no 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 it's yeah fine. yeah you know but hopefully that seed is planted that if it does crop up as a problem oh they asked me about that that means it's okay to talk about it yeah yeah do you find that that you do get people who are like oh no absolutely <laughs> like, yeah all ages um however Probably not that many. You would think perhaps you would have more people who would think, oh, no, I don't want to talk about that. It's, you know, it's <laughs> private. But actually, the response is usually, even from people you'd least expect it, there is often a response of, oh, no, it's fine. Oh, yeah, we're still this. And then they delve off into, oh, my husband's this and we're fine. And we, you know, they literally go off on a real tangent and tell you all sorts of bits and pieces. Um, not necessarily related to sex itself, but about their relationship and their intimacy and what's happened happened to them and and you know what they still do and what they still talk about so you do find that a lot of people are so receptive mm. to that that simple it's question to talk about more day to day isn't it and just normalize it yeah well i think also we focus a lot on the patient obviously because they're our mm. focus but it does affect their their partner it affects their relationship massively um and that yeah. just allows them to talk about that as well and the impact that everything's having on their family and their partner yeah do you often have them when you've got clinic and patients partners with them? Is it difficult to have those sort of conversations when partners are present or? I would have thought so in the past, but um, <laughs> not so much now that, that you get you get quite practiced at talking about sex yeah. um, with, <laughs> with patients and partners. Um, becomes like anything quite second nature um, and actually it's been difficult because we haven't been seeing that many people face to face because yeah. of COVID, so it's really messed things up a little bit, and a lot of the stuff's been done over the over the telephone, um, which isn't great because it's not easy to have intimate conversations over the phone because you can't see the reaction from the patient, and if they get teary, then there's the silence, and you you know you just it's just yeah. not as good as face to face. Um, however, I have seen a couple of couples recently in the sexual care clinic, um, and it's a different dynamic, it's a different interaction, um, but it's quite interesting to see that sort of um dynamic between yeah. the couple um and no it hasn't um I, you know i was nervous before thinking oh this is going to be a bit weird you yeah. know this is all about the lady um and having the partner there might be a bit intimidating but actually it's been quite quite good really i think it's always yeah. good to hear their perspective no it is because you get to be, see both sides don't you that is it's it's important it's important to have yeah um, it's just people having the confidence to kind of be able to talk about it and mm -hmm. yeah I, I mean I mean patients patients talking about it in front of partners or yeah yeah well often they won't necessarily have spoken to their partner about some of their worries or how they really feel certainly my colleague noticed that a lot with some of the men that she was seeing she often described this light bulb moment where the one would turn to the other and go oh I didn't know you I oh. didn't know you felt like that oh. you know oh you've never told me that before um, and it just gives them that it's almost that media mediation isn't it where you've yeah. got somebody else that you're telling even though your partner's there it's that safe yeah. safe environment oh. and I think it's quite difficult for couples to bring up the conversation yeah definitely. you know if you've been in a, a relationship for a long time you get into a real rut don't you about what you you just assume you know what your partner likes and wants that you you don't always talk about what what you want and what you like you just sort of make those assumptions and it's quite hard to to bring up that yeah. sort of sort of conversation
any areas and if and taking their cue if they highlight anything as a worry like oh I'm, I've got a I've read about these dilators you know you can you can give them some reassurance and and I guess knowing about what services are available in your area that towards that you can perhaps mention in your first day chat yeah. um, or even in the first day chat you could probably bring it up quite easily perhaps during treatment it's a bit harder day to day but if you're doing that first day chat with a patient on the first day of treatment and you're talking about the side effects it'd be very easy to to, to pop in um, sex and intimacy and changes in sexual function and the support that we can offer or the signposting um, that is available through charities like Joe's or you know late effects clinics um, or even just highlighting that it's okay to talk to your clinician and your medical team about all these issues. And then obviously at the end of treatment, again, just reiterating, like Ria said, about what to expect after treatment and the possible things that could happen and to yeah. please talk to, to your team about it. I've just had one other question as well, because obviously the route that you've taken and you're now a consultant radiographer, uh, would you give any advice to anybody who wanted to go down a similar route to you? I know that you kind of... I know exactly what you mean when you said about um, you kind of found your found your specialty because it, it, you ended up kind of falling into it and enjoying what you did. But would you give any advice? Well, I do have a keen interest in advanced and consultant practice because that's what I did my dissertation on. And um, I am quite involved with the trust and trying to advance the sort of profile of advanced and, and consultant practice. So. Um, it is an area of interest and, yeah. and it is trying to um, trying to encourage people see the benefit of those roles, I guess, and the benefit that specialist practitioners can have on the patient pathway at all points yeah. um, and educating our colleagues on on the benefits of those roles and the impact that they can have. But equally, I think we mustn't sort of forget the importance of the treatment radiographer or the pre-treatment radiographer um, who isn't specialised because they bring a huge amount of skill and experience and support to the patients. Yeah. So um, I think you've got to have an interest in um, either a special specialty site or an interest in, in um, you know, autonomous working to go into advanced or consultant practice you've got to have that drive I don't think it really matters if you don't have a particular site in mind I think you could probably switch specialties fairly easily the premises are the same you know it's all about supporting the patient and the family and the the pathway and service development and educating both patients and and the service users um about it um but equally, as I said, I think there's a lot of our treatment radiographers who feel really devalued because we're always promoting advanced and consultant practice, um, which is quite sad, really, because they, they have a huge amount of skill um, yeah. and expertise, both day to day, you know, from the, the skill point of view, but also from the patient support. I mean, we hear so often about how lovely the treatment radiographers were and, you know, they wouldn't, you know, that that sort of light-hearted the smiley face that was welcoming you know they, the feedback that patients give about radiographers in general in radiotherapy yeah. is always amazing isn't it um but i think if you want to go into to any sort of advanced or consultant role you've you've got to um realize that there's a number of years of <laughs> learning that happens yeah, yeah. You know, i i only feel now six years later that i'm probably fulfilling um not completely fulfilling but um, I'm closer to fulfilling all the possibilities that I could with this role it's just such a learning experience you know there's education there's on the job there's experience there's there's all sorts of things and you're constantly striving for for other areas that you can really impact the patients and the the service delivery so yeah. you have to you know you can't just fall into the role and and accept that you're gonna <laughs> just be amazing at it immediately <laughs> and make all these brilliant impacts because it really does take a lot of time constantly developing absolutely yeah. <laughs> sort of looking for new new areas of interest and, and what you can do to improve things oh, so I think I think that's probably about it if everybody is happy and there's nothing else that anybody wants to say but you've all been amazing and it's been great listening to you yeah thank oh, you yeah. so much for making yeah, so it welcome so easier as well you've been amazing <laughs> considering it's our first podcast good luck with the editing that's going to be a challenge yeah <laughs> uh, looking forward to hearing it because... yeah. well it's only been a few months 
um yeah yeah <laughs> we're we're finally here um and we're really glad that we're able to share this now I mean how long have we been waiting to share this for oh, this is like so yeah long. so excited it's been, it feels like a lifetime but yeah we've done it yeah and we're so proud of our guests they they were amazing weren't they yeah they were they so were. knowledgeable so their experiences to talk about your experience um like Ria did just unbelievable yeah I know and to be able to sort of listen to the knowledge as well and hopefully um sort of ad- like adapt our practice a little a little bit with things that we've been that we've been told as well definitely I know I will I'll definitely take things away from this make sure um as well that you check out Ria's blog it is unbelievable um and it it's very very honest and yeah it's a really great resource there it is and obviously also all the services that um joe's trust offer as well um they're really a really really good charity that is definitely there to help people in their time of need especially yeah and please do not feel embarrassed about talking about your sexual health with respect to radiotherapy or anything linking to being worried about a cancer diagnosis um such as something to do with hpv please do not feel embarrassed there are people out there who are going through this or are willing to to listen and give advice and provide support as well so i think that's it isn't it yeah so until next time (laughs) 